because the accident goes into some, I think, seven years ago, about... 56, yeah. 56. Um, uh, when, I, when they showed me in the hospital a picture that was in the paper of the car, I couldn't believe I was in the hospital bed. It was so demolished. And uh, it was a result of just plain tiredness after shooting. I was so tired because I'd gone down a winding road like this in Beverly Hills, you know how they go? They're very dangerous. And I'd gone down all those, and then I just went sort of like that, half asleep. That was enough to run right into a power pole. If the thing, big box, had dropped down on me, I would not be here to talk with you. Uh, and then uh, in the hospital, I saw the, uh, I saw the picture of the car. And I must say, my face was about as disfigured. I was all bloat, as a friend of mine who came from the East said. Um, she said, the only thing normal about you is your ears. I wouldn't recognize myself. And I had no identification on me. Fortunately, a friend of mine was driving right in front of me. Welcome back to Hollywood Classified. I am John William Law, your host. Thanks for tuning in. We are talking about Montgomery Cliff this time. Uh, we've done a couple shows so far. We're sort of uh, just getting into the heart of things. Um, you just heard a little bit of Montgomery Cliff right there in a, in a kind of short little soundbite. Um, we're doing the podcast, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, to kind of talk about a new book that's called The Longest Suicide in Hollywood, which is a book I wrote. Uh, and it is out in July of 2021. It is actually being released on the anniversary of Montgomery Cliff's death. Um, and uh, the book really looks at the little kind of last 10 years of Montgomery Cliff's life, um, but it focuses largely in the early part of it on the making of Raintree County and the, um, the horrific car crash that nearly killed him. It, that sort of um, launched him into kind of this kind of dark period. He, he um, had suffered a, a lot of injuries in that crash and it sort of ended up him, him addicted to kind of painkillers and and various drug medications and, and alcohol which sort of gave him put him on kind of a downward spiral and so that is really the focus of the book um, we are just about at the point of the crash uh, today so we're gonna get a little bit into uh, a little bit background there and um, hopefully you'll find it an interesting show Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Wilding married in February 1952 and settled into married life with their first child, Michael, who was born in 1953. Setting up home first in a three-bedroom property on Summer Ridge Drive in posh Beverly Hills, it was the summer of 1954 when they decided they needed a larger place. Before the birth of their second child, Christopher Wilding would be born in February of 1955. One afternoon, the couple noticed a for sale sign at 1375 Beverly Estate Drive and wanted to get a look inside. Before contacting the agent, they climbed over the wall to get a closer look. They managed to get inside after finding a sliding glass door on the side of the house unlocked. Once inside, Elizabeth fell in love with the place. She described it this way. One whole wall was built of dark with fern and orchids growing up the bark, and the bar was made of stone, and the fireplace had no chimney. There was a device making the smoke go down under the building and out through a barbecue pit. What she especially liked, she recalled, was you really couldn't distinguish between the inside and the outside. All the colors she loved, they were off-white, white, natural woods, beigey stone, beigey marble. The 
pool was so beautiful, she said. There were palm trees and rock formations. It looked like a natural pool with trees growing out of it. It was the most beautiful house I'd ever seen, she said. The couple put in an offer, and not long after, they moved in. In addition to the luxurious interiors, the Wildlings appreciated the secluded, private location of the home. Hidden in the hills above Hollywood, the house required traversing several twisting and narrow roads to reach it. Shrouded by trees and shrubs, and shadowed by the private grounds around the house, guests traveled west on Sunset Boulevard to Benedict Canyon and up Tower Road to make their way past a gated entrance before reaching the home. By 1956, Raintree County was well into production, but the Wilding marriage was in shambles and was, the end was near. Montgomery Clift reportedly spent a great deal of time caring for the couple's two young children. He was bathing, babysitting, and putting the boys to bed while Taylor was off, quote-unquote, on business. In reality, Liz was in the throes of a new extramarital affair, and while Cliff tended to the children, Michael Wilding, her husband, was mixing alcohol with antidepressants and would talk about his crumbling marriage. Wilding would reportedly drive to Monty's apartment later in the evening after Taylor fell asleep and have Monty console him over Taylor's philandering. Taylor, on the other hand, would tell Monty her side during their days on the set of Ranger County. Cliff tried to remain impartial. Though Taylor would remain close, his close friend and confident, he knew she shared much of the responsibility for the failing marriage. With Raintree County in full swing and going well, the cast and crew were due to head off for location shooting. On Saturday, May 12, 1956, Liz and Michael decided to have a small dinner party in their Benedict Canyon home before heading out of town for location filming. Monty had been invited to the party that evening, but he initially declined the invitation, not feeling social and preferring to rest at his rented home before heading off for the lengthy location shoot. In fact, Clift hoped very much to avoid another evening of the wild, watching the demise of the wilding marriage. However, Taylor refused to take no for an answer. Calling him at least three times that day, she pleaded with her dear friend to make an appearance. She even told him a young priest had been invited and very much wanted to meet him after seeing him in I Confess. Clift reluctantly agreed after Michael Wilding convinced him by saying, We need you. You're an interpreter of two people who no longer speak the same language. In addition to Clift and the priest, Rock Hudson and his wife Phyllis Gates, along with actor Kevin McCarthy, would join the Wildings at their home that evening. The priest never showed up and may have been a ruse convinced to simply get Monty to go. Monty had spent the afternoon in his rented apartment on Dawn Ridge Road in Hollywood, relaxing and drinking. Before leaving for the party, he reportedly popped a handful of secondol. In Los Angeles, he preferred to use a driver to get around, but having given his driver the night off, Monty decided to drive himself to Benedict Canyon in his leased four-door brown and white Chevy. He lived less than ten minutes from Taylor's house. Wilding greeted the guests as they arrived, apologizing for back problems that would not make him the best of company. He took drink orders as they waited for Taylor to make her appearance. The couple's small dogs played with the guests. Monty and Kevin McCarthy were already there by the time Rock Hudson and Phyllis Gates had arrived. About a half hour later, Taylor finally appeared dressed in a white evening gown laden with jewels, as Gates recalled. The gathering, as Phyllis Gates remembered, was not the most festive crowd, with Wilding suffering from his sore back and Monty brooding and acting sullen. She said Kevin McCarthy kept the evening bright and interesting as he entertained the Hudsons. After dinner, Clifton Taylor spent 
the remainder of the evening talking quietly about their work on the film while Frank Sinatra records played in the background. The other guests made small talk as Michael Wilding stretched himself out on the sofa, suffering another back spasm. Monty, also not feeling well, lay down on the floor as he talked to Taylor. Actor Kevin McCarthy had an early morning flight to New York and didn't want to be up late. He didn't want to make a late evening of it. He also said he also happened to be on the wagon and didn't have anything to drink. He said Monty didn't drink much either that night. At about 12.30 a.m., McCarthy announced he was leaving and calling it a night. Cliff stood up as well, saying, I'm going too. McCarthy recalled, I'd become fairly familiar with the canyon roads by this time. I told him to follow me, and I would show him how to get there. Elizabeth Taylor confirmed the timing of the events. She said at about 12.30 he left to go home. He lived just four and a half minutes from us, over the next hilltop. He was completely exhausted and he promised to follow Kevin's car down the hill. With no signs of precipitation and the temperature a cool but comfortable mid-fifties and the sky clear, McCarthy assured Monty he could lead him down the dark, winding, narrow road, showing Cliff the way out of the canyon as the two exited the house in the dark. As we were climbing into our respective vehicles, I asked him which way he was heading. He told me he wanted to go home, and I said I knew a shortcut. McCarthy recalled what happened next. We started down the hill, and all of a sudden he was coming up very fast behind me. We were approaching the first turn in the road, and it was very sharp. I didn't know why he was coming up behind me so fast. At the time, I thought it was a prank, since I knew he loved to pull things like that. His lights were getting brighter, and I thought he was going to hit me, and I was just going to go through the house, which was on a hill just beyond the turn, and off a cliff. I turned quickly. At the next turn, I figured I'd had it, and I was going to get, was, wasn't going to get involved anymore in the game. McCarthy said he sped up and saw Cliff driving erratically, and then suddenly I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw that Monty's car was coming much too close to my car. I got the idea he was going to play one of his practical jokes. He was going to give me a little nudge. He never did bump the car, but I had the feeling he might, so I put my foot on the gas and went a little faster. Monty's car seemed to be almost on top of me. I wondered if he was having a blackout. I got frightened and I spurted ahead so he wouldn't bump me. We both made the first turn, but then the next one was treacherous. We were careening now, swerving and screeching through the darkness. Behind me, I saw Monty's car's lights weave from one side of the road to the other, and then I heard a terrible crash. Cliff's car flew off the road and hit a telephone pole, bounced off and crashed into a cliff. He was nearly killed. A cloud of dust appeared in my rearview mirror, said McCarthy. I stopped and ran back. Monty's car was crumpled like an accordion against a telephone pole. The motor was running like hell. I could smell gas. I managed to reach in the window and turn off the ignition, but it was so dark I couldn't see inside the car. I didn't know where Monty was. He seemed to have disappeared. McCarthy turned his car around and directed his headlights into Monty's crumpled car on the dark hillside. Then I saw him curled up under the dashboard. He'd been pushed there by the force of the crash. His face was torn away, a bloody pulp. I thought he was dead. To get help, McCarthy drove back to the Wilding house, shaking as he pounded on the door. There's been a terrible accident, he yelled. I don't know whether Monty's dead or alive. Get an ambulance, quick. Wilding and McCarthy tried to keep Taylor from going down to the site of the crash, but there was no stopping her. 
No, no, I'm going to Monty, Taylor demanded, racing down the hill. She was like Mother Courage, recalled McCarthy. Monty's car was so crushed you couldn't open the front door, so Liz got through the back door and crawled over the seat. There she crouched down and cradled Monty's head in her lap. He gave a little moan, then he started to choke. He pantomimed weakly to his neck. Some of his teeth had been knocked out, and two of his front teeth were lodged in his throat. I'll never forget what Liz did. She struck her fingers down his throat, and she pulled those teeth. Otherwise, he would have choked to death. While Taylor did assist Cliff, she recalled the story slightly differently. One story suggests that Cliff had trouble speaking because two of his bottom teeth had become lodged in his tongue, and Taylor helped him free his tongue to talk. His face was gushing blood. She said, I couldn't see Monty at all, but I crawled into the car and I put his head on my lap. Finally, he came to, and he began to try and pull out a loose tooth. He asked me to pull out that one and another, and I did. I had to use control to not get sick. Taylor held Clifton until the ambulance arrived, and Phyllis Gates climbed in to help. The steering wheel, she said, appeared to have been pushed his face in, she recalled. I could see that he had lost some of his front teeth. Police reports of the crash alerted the media and soon Hollywood photographers had arrived on the scene looking for images of the horrific crash. Get those goddamn cameras out of here, Taylor demanded. Rock Hudson and Kevin McCarthy attempted to block the photographer's view. Taylor told the press that she knew each and every one of them personally and if they took pictures of Cliff, she'd make sure that they'd never worked in Hollywood again. The threat worked, and not a single photograph of Cliff's mangled face was taken that evening, though photographs of the car would make headlines around the world the next day. In the next episode, we're going to go into the hospital, and we're going to talk about Montgomery Cliff's recovery and his return to Raintree County. If you're interested in learning more, uh, some of the, the, the chapter or the sections of this podcast are from uh, my new book, The Longest Suicide in Hollywood, The Death of Montgomery Cliff. And uh, you can pick up a book in uh, print or in ebook or enhanced ebook. It's available in places like Amazon.com and most wherever books are sold. There's an enhanced edition as well on iTunes iBookstore. Uh, so thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.